Pastor Brandon joined with Pastor Zach. We're pastors at Westside Reformed Church, a URC congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio. And today we're um, continuing in our series where we are comparing and contrasting a Reformed Catholic tradition with a Roman Catholic tradition. And uh, we've spoken already on the topics of authority and sola scriptura, uh, and we also spoke on sola fide, justification, and how, how we are in right standing before a holy God. Today we want to pick up the topic of the Pope and talk about church structure and how the Reformed Church has structured the church according to Scripture, and then how, um, how, how the Roman Catholic Church uh, structures the, the church. Uh, and of course, we don't want to paint any straw man or anything like that. So, Zach, maybe you can start us off. Uh, what has the Catholic Church officially said? Sounds good. Let me, let me begin by reading from the First Vatican Council. And one thing that I'm not sure if we mentioned in past episodes is that when there is a de decision declaration made by these councils, like the Council of Trent in the last episode, these are called dogmas, and these are really unchangeable within the Roman system, given the nature of how they view these things. And so when we say, uh, read from these things, it's important for us to mention that these are absolutely authoritative, that they are not just like an opinion being spread and that that can be taken or left by a Roman Catholic or Roman Catholic priest or something like that. These are, by their definition, absolutely binding. They cannot err, they cannot be changed. And so, and this, and this goes back to our, our first episode talking about authority. Yep, exactly. Whereas, you know, we have the, the view that the Bible is a sole ultimate authority. They have the view yep. that it's the Bible and then it needs a supplement. It needs mm -hmm. a, the other half, which is yep. tradition, which also makes it difficult when, when you're chatting with the Roman Catholic. You know, we're, we're quoting from the Bible and then everything else is, uh, is secondary or, or supplemental. Whereas they could just quote from First Vatican or Trent or the yep. Catechism, and that's just right up there, equal with the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it is. It does make conversation, you know, uh, difficult. Yeah, exactly. So from the First Vatican, let me read from it. If anyone says that the Roman Pontiff, that means the Pope, has only the office of inspection and direction, but not the full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole Church not only in matters that pertain in faith and morals, but also in matters that pertain to the discipline and government of the church throughout the whole world. Or if anyone says that he has only a more important part and not the complete fullness of this supreme power, or if anyone says that his power is not ordinary and immediate, either over each and every church uh, or over each and every one shepherd, and faithful, let him be anathema. So you must affirm all those things, or according to Roman Catholicism, you are eternally condemned, anathema. What's interesting there, too, is we, there was this big movement when Pope Francis got in, and some people saw him as being more on the kind of the left wing of Roman Catholicism, and then there was this movement of people saying, well, not my Pope, or something like mm -hmm. that. But it really doesn't <laughs> fit with how they're defining, you know, the authority of the Pope. And again, if anyone says that he is not 
uh, the Supreme Shepherd over each and every faithful Catholic, mm-hmm. each and every um, priest and shepherd of the church. Let him be anathema. Uh, so I don't know how not my Pope can jive with the official dogma. That's right. Second Vatican says this, the Pope's power of primacy over all, both pastors and faithful, remains whole and intact. In virtue of his office, that is, as vicar of Christ and pastor of the whole church, the Roman pontiff has full, supreme, and universal power over the church, and he is always free to exercise this power. Mm-hmm. End quote. So, I think it should be pretty clear here that there are really no limits being placed upon the Pope in any sense. There's no sense of him... Uh, being alongside others and governing with others or something along those lines, but he is uh, preeminent and he's qualitatively different than everyone else within the church. So thus far, the Roman Catholic um, quotes, just to note here that clearly this uh, perspective is very hierarchical in the most supreme, uh, uh, most transcendent way possible and uh, placing the Pope at the very top. And then you have the series of cardinals and archbishops and then priests that come down from this hierarchy. But all of these things are channeled back and funneled back to that one uh, supreme uh, vicar of Christ, uh, which is the Pope. And he has the power to speak ex cathedra. He can Mm -hmm. speak from the chair at times where he actually can speak scripture in a way. That's well, we, well, not actually scripture, but uh, right. from their right. vantage point, yes, right, uh, it would be in the same, uh, right. the same level of authority, right, as as scripture, the same, um, uh, the same quality mm-hmm. as as scripture, exactly. So, Brandon, how about you? Uh, maybe give us a little bit of an insight into how then the reformed, not the Roman Catholic, but the reformed Catholic uh, pr- approach to things, uh, what that might be. So we obviously have a different view on uh, Matthew 16, mm-hmm. 18. Yep. Uh, we, we've done a whole episode on Matthew 16, 18, so I'll, I'll uh, link that in the show notes page. But um, just to kind of hit on that just briefly, you know, Matthew 16, 18, where um, Christ is talking to Peter. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, He's calling Peter a rock here because Peter just made that that great declaration. Um, you know, who, who who do you say that I am? And and Peter said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Christ says, "Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." And then a few verses later, when Jesus or when Peter tries to actually keep Jesus from the cross, mm-hmm. from fulfilling his mission, uh, Jesus calls him Satan. And he looks at Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. So when Peter confesses Christ, he calls him rock. When he, when he uh, tries to prevent the gospel from actually taking place, or prevent the good news from actually manifesting, uh, he calls him Satan. And he's saying, upon this rock I will build my church. And he gives to um, Peter the keys of the kingdom. And um, what's interesting is in two, two chapters later, in chapter 18, those keys are given to to the church. Uh, he gives he gives those same those same keys that he gave that he spoke to Peter in chapter sixteen. Give those uh, to to the to the church. 
And what we see as, as the scriptures um, continue is, yes, the, the, the apostles were foundational, right? The uh, Christ poured out his Holy Spirit, and the apostles wrote, and uh, we, have, we have many of their letters, we have gospels and, and things that, that they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us uh, the very words of God, and we have an apostolic faith. We have an apostolic faith as rooted in the apostolic word, as, as inscripturated and given to us, uh, inspired in the Holy Scriptures. When we look, for example, in Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone. And it doesn't single out any particular apostle. It doesn't say, well, the foundation is Peter. It says the foundation is the apostles. There's, there's 12 apostles. And when the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is descending from heaven, on the foundation pieces are written all 12 apostles. Not just, it's not just Peter, it's all 12. And we um, have their inscripturated word that, that was given to us in, in sacred uh, writing. And um, what Rome wants to do, though, with that text is they want to say, well, Peter is somehow the first pope. And he somehow laid hands on his successor and passed the Petrine keys to him. And that other guy became the vicar of Christ. And in a mechanical way, they kind of passed the keys down, passed the authority down over time. So there's always been a pope from Peter to Pope Francis today in this unbroken uh, kind of mechanical passing down of the Petrine keys. One problem with that is uh, in 1409, you had um, you actually had three popes, and they excommunicated each other, and they excommunicated each other's followers. So you had three popes. Now one of those, I suppose, was kind of you know more mechanically connected than than the other two, um, but they were all excommunicating each other. And so what happened was a council had to be called that usurped papal authority. And that council then appointed their own pope, Pope Martin. And um, whatever mechanical line they had was broken. Uh, and there was you know, obviously uh, a council that followed 1409. But what's interesting is Second Vatican says a council is never ecumenical unless it is confirmed or at least accepted as such by the successor of Peter. And what's interesting is the three popes did not want this council to come and over and overstep them and cancel them out and appoint their own. And um, so, as one church historian said, I don't know how Roman Catholics uh, go on past for the 1400s except by sheer will because the line is broken at that point. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense. In the Reformed world. Um, we don't hold the Pope to be the head of the church. We hold Christ to be the head of the church. He says that in uh, Colossians chapter 1, for example, Christ is head of the church. And Christ rules and directs and guides and is with his church through the word, through the sacraments, as they are administered by his faithful uh, men that he has, he has appointed, um, the, the ministers, the elders um, of, of the church. And that is how he guides and, and shepherds the church. That's how he exercises his, his headship. And we don't have 
So I was talking one time with a, a Eastern Orthodox who's married to a Roman Catholic, and he was trying to understand the Reformed Church, and he said, so who's, who's at your top? Like, who's the, who's the man? And, you know, I had to kind of explain Reformed polity, like there is no man at the top kind of directing things. Um, but each consistory, which is, um, which is the elders and the ministers of the church, they form the consistory of, of each church. Sometimes it's called a session. And they um, hold the keys and they uh, give a direction. And, then, and, and that's how Christ leads his church through the uh, members of the consistory. And we do have assemblies, we do have synods, we do have meetings called classes, which are regional meetings. And then we have a big meeting called synod. Uh, sometimes it's called general assembly. And um, we, that's very much in line with what we see in Scripture, for example. In Acts chapter 15, there was a controversy in the church, and they called elders um, from each of the local congregations. They came together um, at, a, at the council, the uh, Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. They um, made authoritative pronouncements that went back to the churches again. And so the Reformed Church carries on that, that apostolic practice of sending uh, two elders or ministers, or an elder and a minister, to the classes or to synod, when synod meets. And that's, again, very much in line with what we see uh, in Scripture. Zach, anything else to kind of flesh out in terms of Reformed uh, polity or how we structure the church? Sure. I think maybe speaking from a, a historical perspective first, what Brandon was mentioning earlier about the multiple popes in the early 15th century and at the end of the 14th, um, that that was a time where there's a debate occurring between what was called the conciliarists and the papists. The conciliarist means that the council is giving leadership to the church, that the papist meant the pope is giving ultimate leadership to the church. And so where we locate ourselves within that, that um, debate is with the conciliarist side of things. Because we do not have, like, like he said, a single guy at the top. Uh, an earthly guy at the top. Our guy at the top is, of course, Christ. <laughs> but in terms of somebody on earth who's giving leadership, we don't have like a guy doing that. But rather, there's a council that does that, a, a consistory, then, then the classes, then the synod, this council of many people uh, coming together. Uh, but still, above that is Christ, and Christ speaking through his word, speaking through the word and spirit. And so we don't put the council alongside scripture, but it's always underneath. Uh, underneath scripture. So I think that might be helpful to, to mm -hmm. say that there is a real debate that was occurring in the Western church. In the East, it's always been a council that has been giving, uh, given um, uh, you know, directional authority, although I think that they might exalt that too highly. But the point being here that within the West, there was actually a debate. And then in the end of the day, politically speaking, the papists won out. And so then the Pope became a supreme Whereas within the Protestant world, within the Reformed world, we are heirs of that conciliarist uh, tradition. But yes, I think that we, we need to recognize and say that as we think about our councils coming to decisions, that ordinarily speaking, yes, the councils are ordinarily going to be coming to biblical, God-glorifying conclusions but we never exalt it to the same level of Scripture and give it infallibility. Extraordinarily, councils can make errors. They can make mistakes. And so it's, it's up to us to correct ourselves and to be humble and say that, well, we're never going to give ourselves the same level of authority 
and a jurisdiction as Scripture has or as Christ has speaking through Scripture, we can always we always must come back and question ourselves: Did we make the right decision, or or did we not? And so, I think that might, might be a couple other things I might say there. How about you, Brian? Any closing words? No, I think that kind of um, sums everything up. Yeah. Okay. Well, we thank you so much for joining us this week as we've been thinking about our our reformed uh, views over against Roman Catholic views. We hope it's been helpful for you. Uh, we'll be coming uh, back here in the next uh, couple of weeks with some more episodes thinking about uh, Mary and the saints and that uh, how that fits within the Roman system and why we, um, uh, we disagree with that. And then later and final, we'll be thinking about the Mass or the Eucharist and again, how that fits into the Roman system and why we, we must uh, protest against that as well. So again, thanks for joining us. We are the Cincy Reformed Podcast, sponsored by Westside Reformed Church. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it.